0: Church, before we jump back into the book of Genesis, we'll be in chapter 14 this week. I just first want to thank our elder, Bethany, uh, who preached last week on Genesis 13, and it was—I'm uh, just so grateful to have uh, elders and others in this church who uh, who love to teach and have the gift for teaching, and uh, and frankly, it's— it's so good for you all to not hear me every week, um, to, to hear God uh, speaking through different personalities and, and different voices, and so I'm just grateful. Thank you, Bethany, for your hard work on that. If you didn't get a chance to hear that, there's some uh, th- great insights into Genesis 13, and also uh, Bethany told a really powerful story from her life that I just would encourage you to jump online and hear that because uh, it's been encouraging me all week. So, this week we are going to jump into Genesis chapter 14, and I'll just, uh, I'll just give myself off the hook right off the bat. Um, I tell people when you're going to read aloud a section of the Bible that has a lot of Bible names in it, the trick is just to go in confident, all right? So that's what I'm going to do. But anyone who can read Biblical Hebrew, I'm looking right here. Uh, oh, Sarah, too. Um, just have mercy on me. Okay, good. <clears throat> so this is Genesis chapter 14. At that time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, went to war against. Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboiim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. See, These last five kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. For 12 years they had served Laomer but in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kador Laomer and the kings who were his allies came and defeated the Rephaites in Ashereth-Kernaim and the Zuzites in Ham and the Emites in shaveh kiriathaim and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El-Paran, which is near the desert. Then they attacked in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, again, and they conquered all the territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazan Tamar. How are we doing so far? <laughs> then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and prepared for battle. In the valley of Sidim, they met Leomor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar. Four kings fought against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, When the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, they fell into them, but some survivors fled to the hills. The four victorious kings took all the possessions and food of Sodom and Gomorrah and left. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions when they left, for Lot was living in Sodom. A fugitive came and told Abram, the Hebrew. Now, Abram was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite and the brother of Eshkol and Aner. All these were allied with, by treaty with Abram. When Abram heard that his nephew had been taken captive, he mobilized his 318 trained men who had been born in his household, and he pursued the invaders as far as Dan. Then, during the night, Abram divided his forces against them and defeated them. He chased them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He retreated all. he retrieved all the stolen property he also brought back his nephew Lot and his possessions as well as the women and the rest of the people. After Abram returned from defeating cater Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram in the valley of Shaveh. that is the king's val- also known as the king 's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine now. He was the priest of the Most High God. He blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by the Most High God, creator of heaven and earth, worthy of praise is the Most High God, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Then the king of Sodom asked Abram, Give me the people and take the possessions for yourself. But Abram replied to the king of Sodom, I raise my hand to the Lord, the Most High God, creator of heaven and earth, and vow that I will take nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal. That way you can never say, it is I who made Abram rich. I will take nothing except compensation for what the young men have eaten. As for the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Father, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word? Father, I imagine, as we um, have just heard that scripture, that um, many in this room—maybe not all, but many—just uh, found themselves flooded with those names and the places, and uh, and the details are kind of lost. Um, so, Lord, I would ask that by your Spirit you use this passage of scripture, which never fades away, never withers, it lasts forever, that you would use it to bear fruit in our lives. So come, Holy Spirit, have your way in the preaching of the word. Amen. Amen. Well, you might be thinking, aha, this is the moment that uh, the Bible sort of wanders into irrelevance for me. If, if you have, if you have ever attempted to read through, you know, the Bible in a year, or even just read through the book of Genesis, you start with the stuff that, um, that like every chapter, there's a VeggieTales episode about it. You know, like you got creation, you got Noah, Noah's Ark, you, you know, you've, you've got the Tower of Babel, you've even got the call of Abram, you know, and he leaves his country and, and, all that stuff, those are, those are, you know, high mountains that we recognize when we, when we look out at, at uh, the, the big stories of the Bible. And then we get to this chapter and like our eyes cross, like, whoa, what is going on in this? Um, you know, even if you like know the life of Abram or Abraham, you, you may not think of this scene as really that important in his life. So why even spend a Sunday on a chapter like this? (laughs) Well, if we keep looking at Genesis through the eyes of the ancient Israelites, which I've argued for the last you know, a couple months, is the way to read Genesis well. If we place ourselves with the crowd of people who have just left Egypt and now they're in the wilderness trying to figure out who are we? Who's this God? Why are we here? Where are we going? What is all this about? We actually would, will be surprised at how important this story is. You see, again and again, as that group of people is wandering through the wilderness, trying to get, you know, to this land that is apparently their promised land, God is telling them to remain separate from other nations, to, to be unique, to, uh, to live differently. And here's a story of what happens when Lot, Abram's nephew does exactly the opposite, goes and blends in with the other nations. Plus, half of the instructions, If you know, you have the book of Genesis, but then the rest of the Pentateuch, the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, the rest of it is the story of that group of people wandering through the wilderness, and, and you get the whole law that God gives them, and all the cultures, and like practically half of the law is this instruction about about. Priests and sacrifices and offerings and proper worship. And in the story we just read is the first time we meet a priest in the whole Bible. And there's this little service that they have. And and Abram offers a a tithe to him. And it, it, it sets the tone for the Israelites to think about how do we relate to these priests there's more that connects to them. In the wilderness, the Israelites are continually derailed by all sorts of things. They get hungry or thirsty. They they feel insecurity, They're not just like emotional insecurity, that's American insecurity, but they feel like real insecurity. There's people trying to attack them. Um, they feel greed. They experience peer pressure and and often they're in this place of sort of shame and guilt. Have they wandered too far to carry the blessing that God gave to Abram, their ancestor, to the nations? The story addresses that. Finally, that group of people is on their way to the promised land, the land that God told this guy Abram that his descendants would own and occupy. The, the problem is that land at the time that the big group of israelites are wandering in the wilderness it's full of other people who are fierce and big and 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 you know bloodthirsty they're in battle all the time how on earth could a nation of slaves with no military training ever invade and capture a territory like that in fact when you start thinking about it that way, you think that's pretty hard. Like why not just settle somewhere? Like find a nice grove of trees somewhere in the wilderness, set up camp and live there forever. Let's just make friends with the local tribes and like live a quiet life. Why not, why make any waves at all? Okay, that's, that's the issue for the first group of people who read this story or who heard this story. That's all the stuff that's on their minds. To complete their journey, they needed to stay the course, brave the storm, I- ignore the chances that they had to escape, and they would get a lot of chances. So that's their issue. What's the issue for us? Does that connect to us at all? Now, Neither you nor any follower of Jesus, I believe, is being asked to, uh, to take up arms and take someone else's land, all right? You, that's not what I'm preaching on this morning, all right? Um, this is not—we're not being called necessarily to, like, military might or courage. In fact, Jesus is clear that his kingdom is not of this world, that it, it's, it's growing up like, like a, a, a native plant in, in all the other gardens of the earth. But that's, I think, where this story does connect for us. You know, you're not on your way to a region that needs to be conquered— I hope if you feel like you are, let's talk after the service. But you are an agent of his kingdom in whatever place you reside, and it is spreading and advancing through you. So how will it spread and advance through you? What this story forces us to ask is, will you be Lot or will you be Abram? Will you, will you be the, the guy who God gave the blessing to or his nephew who's tagging along? That's the same question we asked last week in a different way. Will you be Lot or will you be Abram? Uh, there's this quote from, from Russell Moore that really stuck out to me as pointing out the difference between Lot and Abram. He says, we seem to want to embrace the world in all the ways we shouldn't, while avoiding engaging the world in all the ways we should. It's it's not just a simple thing of like disengage, separate from the world. There are ways we're to engage it, but instead we kind of enter into it in the wrong way. So that's our topic today. We're going to look at it in three parts, looking at Lot and Abram. We're going to look at Lot's Lot, (laughs) Lot's Liberty, and Abram's Aha. I'm a preacher. I I just, you know, I love making the letters work together. So Lot's Lot. He's caught in the chaos. Here's what happens. The first half of our passage, it, it actually, it sounds like, well, global news. Like if you're trying to read a summary of what's going on in Ukraine and Russia right now, you know, that's kind of how it feels. It's, it's chaotic and there's a lot of hard to pronounce names, right? Um, who's with who? Why are they fighting? Who's winning? Is it, is it good or bad if one wins over the other? You know, and frankly, you, you get kind of into the, the details of the story and like, there's like people winning and losing everywhere, people dying, some escape into the hills. People are getting caught in tar pits. I mean, they're like getting stuck in literal mud and muck. And who's caught up in all of that chaos? Lot. Lot's caught up in all of it. Let's just take a step back and take a look at Lot's life so far. There's this domino effect that's been playing out since uh, since the end of chapter 11 through chapter 12 and 13. His his very decision to leave his grandfather and go with abram in chapter 12 is is questionable at best like should he even have left his grandfather you know and then and then in chapter 13 lot and abram's uh uh you know men they they get in some conflict and so abram offers lot the choice of the land and Lot acts in the flesh. He, he, choose, he looks with his eyes and he takes the best land that he can see. And, and that's what Bethany taught us on last week. And now, having gone and, you know, set up camp in Sodom and moved in with that community, he's caught up in their conflicts, in their tribal conflicts. He's exposed to what they're exposed to. Their risks are his risks, there's a, there's a saying that you all know, if you play with fire, you're going to get, hey, nice, good, good. So how often uh, in our lives do we hope to compartmentalize things so that we can have it both ways? You know, when we're in this situation, we act this way. We're in this situation, we act that way. I'll, I'll tell you who understands this really well, and that's uh, the addicts among us. By the way, it's probably all of us, but um, some here have recognized the addictions in their lives. You know, if you're a believer, but you're also wrestling with addiction, here's here's kind of the, the idea that plays out in your mind all the time. I know God is my source of identity, comfort, peace, love. But then when we get stressed, when we get anxious... We gravitate to whatever, you name it, chocolate, fast food, alcohol, weed, porn, gambling, chocolate, shopping. That's what happens. We compartmentalize. And then we hope to keep that thing that we just did separate from this other part of our lives. So here's what I see in Scripture, in the life of Lot. I don't know that God often keeps us from the consequences of those choices. In fact, I think God in his mercy lets us experience those consequences. When we choose chains, he lets us be chained. Jesus himself says, whoever sins is a slave to sin. This is also true when we, well, when we, get, when we mix up with people in a certain way. Now, I'm not telling you not to associate with certain types of people, right? I'm not at all. But when we associate with people for our benefit rather than for theirs, we actually get caught up in whatever they're caught up in, all right? Here's some examples. I think most of us learn as teenagers that if we, like, if we jump into the whole game of, like, popularity and acting cool and exclusive and and whatever, it, 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 sucks us into these relational triangles where in the relationships aren't really based on mutual affection for each other but like how can you make me cooler and how can me keeping you away and and then you find yourself on the outside of some circles and on the inside of others and 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 embarrassed at a party or what you know it's like that stuff happens and you know i said we learned that as teens but grown-ups We still fall into that junk all the time. Or perhaps in in business, at work. You may find yourself working at a company that has um, shady business practices, cutthroat business practices to get ahead. And when we jump into the dog-eat-dog culture of many industries, well, then we get bit by that. I've seen this where Groups of friends make alcohol sort of the focal point of their social gathering. Like, you know, it's not just something that's, that's there as a beverage, but like, this is what we're here focusing on and, and what we're talking about and excited about it. And, and I think when we do that, inevitably, the chains of alcoholism grab someone in the group or more. Romans chapter 12 gives this challenge. Do not be conformed to this present world. And when we're looking at these bloody kings with confusing names literally stuck in tar pits, we're like, yeah, that's a good idea. I don't want to be conformed to the world. Like when we see the mess, of course, we don't want to be conformed to it. That's a pretty good idea. But I asked a few minutes ago, will you be Abram or will you be Lot? And I asked that as if you had a choice. I'm sorry to mislead you. You, you are Lot. And so am I. So were the ancient Israelites in the wilderness. Just read their story. You know, we, you read their stories in Exodus or Numbers and, and, like we sometimes read their complaints to Moses like in the the voice of a a whiny 6-year-old. That's the one of the worst noises in the world, by the way. When the wine you're like, "Can you just talk to me like normal, please? You know, this is the first time I'm hearing that you need milk or whatever." Um, so we hear them in those in those sounds, but these are these are normal people who've been thrust into the, you know, the the sticks. They're just trying to get by, and they're they're trying to do, do the best they can. They're trying to take care of their kids, get along with their neighbors, trying to get ahead. Their lot, they're constantly looking for that, for just security and quiet and peace. And again and again, they make decisions based on what they can see. And what they can't see, they're just like us. I mean, we negotiate our way through life. We we decide here and there what what our line is. H- how often do you feel like you're trying to make a choice between th- that terrible phrase, the lesser of two evils? It's not just for voting season. We do it all the time. You know, we do. That's happens all the time. I. I as I started thinking about it for this sermon i 'm like i don 't know entirely how not to be caught up in this chaotic world um, we 've got this group there 's fifteen people on our team, World Vision running team. you know we 're we're running the Colfax Marathon or half marathon, and meanwhile we 're raising money for world vision for for clean water projects around the world it 's like such a wonderful cause. And, you know, I'm thinking about that all the time because, you know, I'm, I'm sore, and so I'm thinking about it. But, like, thinking about that, meanwhile, I consider it just a normal day in my life, and I don't think twice about how much water I use, you know, about whether my sprinklers are efficient or whatever. Like, I, we're caught up in that. We, we want justice for oppressed workers globally, and then we're like so thrilled by the super cheap prices on Amazon, you know, from companies that we don't know anything about in China, other places. Churches too. We acknowledge the mental health effects, for example, of of social media, how it's generally negative. <laughs> and churches still post our content in hopes of more and more people finding the church and connecting. Like We're kind of playing it both ways. We're all locked, caught up in this. We've all made our life in Sodom. Trying to do our best, even though we sometimes feel like we have to play by their rules. But then when the battle comes, when the muck comes, when the mental health challenge comes, when the addiction comes, when whatever, well, we can't escape. We're in it. That's Lot's Lot, and it's our Lot. So what's Lot's liberty, okay, his liberty? Lot is rescued in the night. Unlike Lot or me, maybe you, Abram, in this story, in this moment, he chose another way. As Bethany discussed last week, his behavior in the previous chapter, in chapter 13, it's a really good illustration of of this promise of Jesus that whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life uh, because of me will find it. I think that's what Abram experienced in the previous chapter. He laid down his rightful claim to any part of the the land, and he gave Lot the choice, whichever he wanted. But after laying it all down effectively, God meets with Abram and says, Look, as far as you can see, it's all going to be yours. I'm giving it all to you. Abram wasn't stuck in the desperate cycle to save his own life. He could dwell in peace and security as long as he remembered God's promise to him. And that's, that's a big key there. How did he remember God's promise? How did he remember God's word? Well, here in our story... You see the guys, they're fighting. There's blood and noise and darkness and escape and tar pits. And then we have a scene change. And the birds are singing. And the sun is shining. And there's Abram in his recliner underneath the oak at Mamra. You know, it's like he's in the shade of this tree. And it's like the, the whole... St- feeling of the story changes there he's, he's got he's got his new buddies around these guys who have come and made treaties and covenants with abram they're experiencing the blessing that god promised already it's just like peace and love and joy it's bliss he's at the place that he heard the promise of blessing again that tree is probably the same tree that we heard about in chapter 12. Abram gets the call of God, and he goes into the land that God calls him to, and he finds this tree, the Oak of Morah, and he worships God at it. And the Oak of Mamre is really the same basic letters in Hebrew, just shuffled a little bit. So some scholars think it's maybe the same Tree, and there he is. That's the place that God spoke to him and told him the promise again. And 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 it's it's the place of uh, worship. It's the place where God appeared to him. It's a fruit-bearing tree that reminds savvy readers of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, or or the tree that fed Noah when Noah gets off the boat, and 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 you know the sort of creation is restored while the nations descend into chaos while the while the nations are literally falling into tar pits god's chosen one is reclining under the shade of this tree the symbol of god's provision it's his reminder the the description of this one group of tribal kings defeating this other bigger group of other kings it makes abram's rescue seem surprising You have all these kings and all their names, and they're doing all this battle. And then this one guy, Abram, goes and gets 318 men. I don't know why the number is so specific, but that's how many he gets. And he steps out instantly in boldness. I mean, that's surprising even in Abram's story. The last time he had any pressure on him, he fled to Egypt and lied about his wife. I mean these other kings they're fierce, violent, intimidating. There's no indication of fear in Abram's actions though. He just jumps out with courage. Do you see it? It's this is the chosen one coming to rescue the one who got wrapped up in the world. Do you see what I'm getting at here? That's the story that we've got. This is is the one who dwells in the gardens of the Lord, who leaves the place of peace and prosperity and enters the fray. But when he does, it's a rescue in the dark of night and it's quickly victorious. That's the rescue. But after the rescue, Abram needs to be reminded again. He has to have an aha the source of victory is what he needs to be reminded about. And, and this, this reminder comes in two parts because there's two other people who come and meet with Abram. One has Abram look back, and one tempts Abram to look forward. As Abram returns from battle, he's met by the king of Sodom, whom Abram just rescued, actually, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Melchizedek invites Abram to look backward, with new eyes. Now, who, who is Melchizedek? Um, he's kind of a mystery. He's got a great name. His name means uh, uh, King of Righteousness, Melchizedek. He's, he's the King of Salem, which becomes Jerusalem, probably. He worships the same God as Abram, the Most High God, the Creator of heaven and earth. And Abram immediately recognizes Melchizedek as like superior to himself. Though Abram is the conquering warrior, greater than nine kings, he offers Melchizedek a tithe. Melchizedek gives Abram bread and wine. These, these two foods starting now become the most symbolic foods in the Bible. They're a constant reminder of God's rescue. It's what the Israelites eat when they're in the wilderness to remember that God rescued them from Egypt. And of course, it's what we eat, bread and wine, to remember the body and blood of Christ. Melchizedek blesses Abram, and that's an act of superiority. That's him saying, "I'm the great, the greater is blessing the lesser. And that's the reminder. This is what he needs to hear. Worthy of praise is the Most High God, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Before this moment, we had no indication that God was behind the scenes of Lot's rescue. We just thought, oh, Abram, he's actually pretty tough. And that may be what Abram was tempted to think. Wow, me and my 318 guys, we just pulled off a pretty sweet victory. Like, I wonder what else we can get. But in this moment, Melchizedek says, no, no, no. That victory came from God that's the the source of your victory. You guys, this is the first priest in the Bible. This is the first quote-unquote organized religion in the Bible and it's a beautiful example of it. Before this Abram builds his own altars, but at this moment he's met by someone else who says, "I want to remind you what's happening behind the scenes." If if the people in the wilderness They're learning about these priests. Like, who are these priests? The Levites and the sons of Aaron. Like, who are they? Their whole life is dedicated to reminding the rest of the people that there's someone working behind the scenes, that it's God who's doing it. That's, look, we all get to be priests in one another's lives for that. Church, I think that's one of the reasons we come together and we talk about what's going on in our life and we pray together about the people that we'll meet and the challenges we'll experience. So Abr- or Abram gets this reminder, but then he gets a temptation. You see, Melchizedek isn't the only one there. He gets the temptation of Sodom. Beyond all reason, the king of Sodom thinks he's in position to cut a deal with Abram. Like, that's shocking to me. Abram just rescued him. And then the king of Sodom is like, hey, yeah, I'll give you some of the stuff that we just won in that victory. Isn't that interesting that he would do that? Like, after being rescued, instead of saying, I owe you everything, he tries to cut a deal with Abram. Maybe it's for safety. Maybe he wants to build an alliance to increase his power. But if Abram were to accept this king's terms... This king is notoriously wicked, by the way. If you look back at chapter 12, he's notoriously wicked. I'm sorry, chapter 13. Um, if Abram accepts these terms, it's like taking a loan from the mob boss. Like, you're, you never get out from that. You're stuck. He'd be obligated to this wicked king. This is an opportunity to make the exact same mistake that Lot made. Right be helped by God and turn around with the reward looking for someone other than God to protect it. You see, faith, church, faith is an ongoing act of trust. A- and we we make this we make this mistake. This is gosh, this I think this is the big thing I want you to grab onto today. Sorry I stuck it here at the end. All right, but but we can easily like when there's a big challenge, something, you know, a A job you want or a challenge that you're facing and, and you like, it happens, you, you get it, you, you succeed, whatever. It's easy for us in that moment to say, yes, God gave that to me. Like God made that happen. God worked it all out. But then once we have it, here's what we do. I will protect this and keep it by any means necessary. Like, immediately we forget that God gave it to us, that his strength was required for it. And we think, it needs to be my strength, what I have, to hold on to it. This happens in every sector of society, every type of life that we have. It happens in church life. In churches, we talk about sacred cows, which, you know, is a dig on Hinduism, making, uh, you know, thinking cows are, are divine, and you can get, you know, sued, you can... Go to prison if you accidentally hit a cow with your car, which is easy to do because they just wander free all over India. Um, So we look at different programs or ministries or, or decorations or whatever, and we start clinging to those as if, like, well, God's the one who made it happen, so I have to protect it no matter what for the rest of my life. We do this with the stuff that we have with our homes, with our cars, with our jobs. But friends... This this moment in Abram's life is that temptation. The king of Sodom is saying, hey, protect it by making an alliance with me. Protect this authority you've just won. This happens all over the Bible, and it happens all through history. Uh, There's a king later in in Israel's story called Hezekiah. Hezekiah. Hezekiah is such a faithful guy. God rescues him from a deadly disease. He rescues him from, from battles. And at the very end of Hezekiah's life, he figures he can kind of impress the Babylonians. And so he invites them in to come and see all of the riches of Jerusalem. And what happens just after Hezekiah's lifetime? The Babylonians sweep in and conquer Israel. That's what happens. You, you Maybe you want a more recent example In 1991, Aung San Suu Kyi was under house arrest in Myanmar, and she was fighting for democracy in Myanmar. And she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize because of her efforts. So eventually, she, you know, led the country to a a truly democratic election, and her party won, and she was really the most powerful person in the nation. And then the rest of the world started realizing that under her administration a genocide was taking place in Myanmar. Like she's holding on to her power. It happened again in, in twenty nineteen. The, the the Prime Minister of Ethiopia was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his work. And then he started receiving opposition in Ethiopia and he himself initiates a civil war to crush the opposition. These stories are as common as we are, we are uniquely and fiercely motivated not to lose what we have. Like we, we kind of want to trust God for the stuff we don't yet have, but we don't want to lose the stuff that we do. We may need God's help to get something, but we'll fight to keep it. What you have, especially if it came through miraculous means, it, it can easily become something that you feel the need to protect. We acknowledge God's gift while we fail to trust his provision ongoingly. Abram doesn't make that mistake, and I'll tell you why. Because the king of Sodom is talking to him while he's got Melchizedek standing right there. Like, that's mercy. You know, it really helps me to make good decisions if I have, like, one of our elders in the room. (laughs) You know, someone who's holding me accountable. Like, remember the promises of God. Remember what we're committed to. I'll, I'll, I'll think much more along the lines of the values God has called us to when I have that kind of accountability. What, what a gift. Melchizedek represents the body of Christ to us. What a, that's beautiful. But he also, he, he, he disappears from the story. This is the last you'll see Melchizedek in the flesh. But a thousand years later, a psalmist will write that someday a king in the line of David will ascend and he'll also be a priest in the line of Melchizedek. And everyone will say, whoa, that's weird. And then a thousand years later, the author of Hebrews will be reflecting on Jesus' life. And he'll say, ah, he's he's in David's line and he's a king priest like Melchizedek. He's the one who ultimately, constantly reminds us, God gave it to you and he will protect it. And we can trust him with it. We can be open-handed with it. That's what Jesus reminds us of. That's that's the reminder we get at this table. Abram still had like bread and wine stuck in his teeth when the king of Sodom tried to cut a deal with him. I heard a few years ago, a uh, pastor, he was doing a like seminar thing for other pastors. And he was talking about his like dogged commitment to preach the gospel to his church, the simple gospel of grace every week, again and again, week after week, year after year. And this phrase that he said, it sticks with me. I, I've said it before here. He said, why, why do I preach the gospel every week? Because you forget it every week. <laughs> well, I, I forget it every week. You guys, while I was writing this sermon, while I wrote that last sentence in this sermon, I get a notification on my computer that the tech stocks are crashing. (laughs) Not crashing, but falling. And like immediately, I'm like, I don't even know I'm just investing in stuff. Like that's a foreign world to me. But I'm like, I gotta do something. You know, I'm like over on my bank website for a minute. I'm like, what am I doing? Wait a minute. I just wrote this sentence about God's provision. We don't have to fear what they fear. This is our reminder. We forget so easily. Let the taste of this bread and wine stay with you. On the very night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, take this and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this, all of you. Every time we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He won the victory for us. He rescued us in the night. And he'll protect it for us, too. Let's pray. Father. I pray that we would receive the courage we need just like I think the Israelites did from this story in the wilderness. The courage to trust you. That you are the one who wins the battle and you are the one who protects the earnings. You're the one who distributes them. We can give them freely. We can can lose them and not fear. Because You are guarding us, and you are worthy. Lord, I pray that we would be a gospel people, not just people who believe what you've done in the past, but apply it to what's happening this week. Thank you, Lord, for offering your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.